This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello again. Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2018, Episode 5, continuing our discussion of Darling and the Franks with Episode 5. Well, I said last time that we might get filler, or thriller, or more partner killer, and somehow we got all of that. For the first time in the series, no one pilots a Franks, and yet the entire episode was filled with tension, building up like an approaching storm, which actually happens by the end. And we did, indeed, get more reasons to be wary of the partner killer. Now, I said way back at the beginning when I chose this series that I had some reservations about it. The first episode did not blow me away, like Maiden Abyss and Land of the Lustrous before it, and I was apprehensive at what I recognized even then as a potential for sexual shenanigans. Darling and the Franks became the least worst option for analysis, basically. That's not me saying that it seemed like the best show of the season, either, but best suited for my particular type of analysis. Well, after episode 5, I am not so wary anymore. This show is interesting, and this episode was very well directed, and the showrunners have proven that they are not afraid of complex characters, narratives, mysteries, or themes. I said last time that it would be a good time to yank the audience in a new direction, and they have delivered. I am pretty enthusiastic about the promise of the series at this point. Now you may have noticed I have some props today. It's Valentine's Day, which means I have bought flowers for various people. Today's theme discussion will pick up where I left off last time, wondering about what to do with plant imagery and the motif of flowers. While I don't have it perfectly sorted out, today's episode introduced a new thematic pattern that I think helps us match up some things that we've only partially grasped before now, so I figured flowers in the shot would be doubly appropriate. Theme is pretty crowded today, and you will notice that I keep deferring to it as we go through the scene walkthrough. Please be patient about this. Uh, the new things I want to sketch out are complicated enough without being spaced throughout the video. It'll make sense when we get there, I hope. Now, in order to get there, we just need to run the title and... Part one begins with a shot of the new plantation, Plantation 26, that has finally made uh, contact with 13. It turns out Plantation 26 is named Chrysanthemum. Now this flower is fairly important in Japan. There is a day that is known as the Chrysanthemum Festival, or Chrysanthemum Day, a holiday that has been celebrated for more than a thousand years. The chrysanthemum also features in the Imperial Seal of Japan, and the throne is known as the Chrysanthemum Throne. This can mean both literally the emperor's throne and rhetorically the head of state. So that means we've had this and Karasus for our two plantation names so far, both of which are plant references with strong cultural significance to Japan. I'm sure that's just coincidence. Now, the parasites from inside their biodome are watching the kissing operation between these plantations. Hiro is thinking about his first meeting with Zero Two, where she informed him that a kiss is a very special thing. Hiro wonders if the adults kiss, and if so, 
Why would they then liken the plantation contacts to a kiss? This is basically him wondering what we talked about a few episodes ago when the term first cropped up. What does the plantation energy transfer and two parasites locking lips have in common? I'm guessing more than just a physical resemblance. Now after some back and forth about who does or doesn't know what the operation entails, we get this bit from Ikuno explaining kissing. It's a transfer of magma fuel reserves from one plantation to another through that big pipe. And then Mitsuru adds on, that fuel is essential for both the adults and us to live. Franks can't be operated without it either. Well, imagine that description is actually about physical kissing, or about physical intimacy in general. Additionally, take note of how Mitsuru separates the us and adults into two categories. They are separate in the parasites' minds, something we wondered about back at the very beginning. This episode will later have a frustratingly intriguing exchange on this very subject. Now, the knowledge that this huge transfer will also mean huge Klaxosaur activity sours the mood a little bit. Hero is optimistic, though, perhaps showing some flashes of his old self, saying, if we work together, we'll be fine. We even have Strelizia now. He sees this as good news, no doubt. It also tells us immediately that the events of last episode mean that Strelizia and Zero Two have not been recalled after the hijinks of last time. But his enthusiasm isn't universal, and the camera immediately switches to Goro, Ichigo, and Mitsuru, all three people who have reason to be wary of Zero Two, and all react accordingly. Ichigo does not contradict Hiro, but she also doesn't echo his enthusiasm. Next we have a grand ceremony celebrating the parasites of both plantations. It appears the other squad is not the eight from the opening credits, but a complement of ten in the same type of uniforms as Plantation 13's squad. If Naomi and Hiro had made it, then they would also number 10, which makes me think that is the standard. If so, the speculation last time about the opening credits group being the Nines, with Zero Two being the missing member, would actually hold a little more water, I think, as they would also be a group of 10 like these two. However, Zero Two's partner-killing ways reduced them to nine regular members, hence the nickname. Anyway, Hiro is narrating thoughts over the top of the ceremony. Like the startup ritual, there seems to be a bit of religious mysticism mixed into this. It actually reminds me a bit of rituals that exalt a sacrifice right before it is, you know, sacrificed. It reminds me of that, but mashed up with a military parade. And in this universe, these may very well be the same thing. So there's a few little details I've noticed here. Even though the kids' uniforms have the stylized X and Y that I've pointed out before, all of the capes appear to have X's. This means that every parasite has either two X's if they're a girl, or an X and a Y if they're a boy. So, you know, exactly like chromosomes. Uh, the two adults, presented as some kind of leader of the plantations, have red sashes that differentiate them from each other and from other adults. One has a large single stripe and three shorter stripes below, while the other has two long but thinner stripes, with six shorter stripes below and one additional short stripe as well. I feel like we can guess these belong to Plantation 13 and 26, respectively, and the bars represent this fact. This pattern appears to be mirrored on the white flags as well. A few different adult uniforms show up, but all of them obscure some of the face and all of the eyes. We also see the two flag designs that were present originally, the white with gold stripes and the gold, white, and blue shield, and I think we can now guess that represents the individual plantations. That same pattern is also represented on red flags that hang down in the back. These flank a different flag design though, a gray field with a light gray and purple pattern that we see associated with the Ape Council. 
It shows up on their podium in the ritual in episode one, and it is on the back of their little egg pod chair things in their weird meeting room. The spiral designs are also present in the ceiling of that ape council room. Now while the gold shield design recalls a bird pretty clearly, the gray design makes me think of a bird, but also of a face, specifically a primate face. Now I was hoping by now we would have more understanding about where ape gets its name and why they wear masks and a host of other things about the way the society is organized. But I guess we can mention it now alongside this flag design. Why do the ape council masks recall the markings of ape species? I mean, they're stylized a bit, but this guy has got to be a mandrel. And there in the back makes me think it's a gibbon of some variety. And this one could be recalling an orangutan or a different gibbon. But their mask designs, especially with the gold brows and the hoods on some of them, also kind of make me think of owls. Maybe I'm imagining it, but the flag struck me as both bird and ape face, and the ape council masks give me a similar impression. Considering the bird and flight metaphors, uh, the potential fate of humanity being in question, and the origin of mankind in ape ancestors, is this all happenstance? I mean, it's all stylized enough to be dismissed, but that could also be to keep it from being obvious. Is the ape council meant to be apes in the sense that they are the progenitors of mankind and the elders among the society? Or are they meant to recall owls that prey on other birds, such as our dove-like gin bird? Or both? All right, enough about flags and design interpretation. Um, seeing themselves celebrated by the adults is fulfilling and uplifting for our squad, though we can assume that the other squad has been through something like this before and is, you know, more sedate about the whole affair. We should take away from this that celebration of parasites in the society is commonplace, and it recalls a country celebrating their military or a religion celebrating its holy people. So far in the series, it feels like it's both. Next section begins after the credits, and we find ourselves back in the birdcage. We see Goto pulling out a suit identical to yesterday's suit, and Hiro is startling hot and wakes up seeming out of sorts. But he waves Goto's concern off, saying that I'm perfectly fine. If anything, I feel really light on my feet. Goto asks if he's lying and gets waved off again, but later on he will state that you know he wouldn't tell us straight up. This is the first of many hints that Hiro is in some kind of distress, but that some part of him is also feeling great. We also get a little shot of these water pipes with water dripping. Uh, we'll keep getting water drops throughout. It'll be a unifying feature for the first half of this episode. The squad in the sitting room is still excited by the ceremony, and Miku is, I think, kind of crushing a bit on Plantation 26's leader. She tries to play it off by saying they're preferable to their own boys, and she wants Ikuno to back her up on it. But Ikuno doesn't agree, and apparently doesn't care. Now, I might as well talk about this now, since we discussed it a bit in the comments of my last video. Some of you have pointed out that Ikuno's actions could point to her being into Ichigo rather than into Mitsuru, or even boys in general. Rather than affection toward Mitsuru being what allowed her to connect last time, it was a desire to do as Ichigo asked of her that enabled her success. It wasn't Mitsuru's touch she was reveling in, but Ichigo's from earlier when she asked to back him up as his partner, and the resulting blush and looking away was from feelings towards Ichigo. Now, this is entirely possible and her indifference toward the boys from either plantation could be from this, though she doesn't really seem naturally warm. There's more in this same scene, actually, specifically with regards to Hiro, where Miku is floating the idea that the three times and you die rumor was all nonsense. 
Ikuno reacts to this by looking at Ichigo and saying that, or he's extremely compatible with her. And Ichigo, though it's subtle, droops her head a bit at this idea. Now, if Ikuno really was into Ichigo, she's probably paid a lot of attention to her. She probably then realizes that Ichigo is into Hiro, even though she's not even aware herself. Knowing this, one could see how Ikuno might want to reinforce to Ichigo that the object of her affection is pretty well matched to someone else. There's no hope that way. Perhaps I can interest you in another way? Now this interpretation is totally plausible, and I do think mixing a homosexual character into all this would be an interesting complication, especially if all the themes about sexuality and its relationship to reproduction bear out. It simplifies our Ikuno and Mitsuru conflict down to a single point as well. It would also recast some other looks Ikuno has given Ichigo thus far, but I don't want to jump on this for sure just yet. As I said when talking about Citrus back in episode 2, anime will sometimes graft girls' love subplots onto stories where they are out of place just because it draws viewers. This leads to a feedback loop where anime viewers tend to see girls' love everywhere, even in places where it doesn't really make sense. In the interest of not falling victim to that, let's acknowledge this, but wait for more information. After all, we don't fully understand how connecting works yet and why some people can succeed and others can't, while some partnerships are compatible and others are not. There's hints that attraction plays into it, which could explain both Zero Two and Hero's success, as well as Ikuno and Mitsuru's failure. But that doesn't explain why Ichigo and Hiro failed while Ichigo and Goro succeeded. In fact, it seems to counter the idea. Also, how likely would it be for a pistol that is only into girls to even make it this far? Or does this bring up an entire theme of social expectations running counter to and complicating sexual identity and attractions? It's a big can of worms, in other words, so we're going to hold off on opening it up. Anyway, Ichigo draws attention to Hiro's success, and the group gives varying reactions to it. Both in this scene and in the following breakfast scene, there is a lot of characterization that is communicated purely by the way characters look at each other. I mentioned the bit with Yukuno and Ichigo already, but you can watch the reactions to Hiro's words around the room as well. Futoshi is accepting and excited. Mitsuru is indignant and pretending to be indifferent. Goro is filled with concern. And Zodome is back to feeling challenged and fires back at him. And when all seems fine with Hiro's humble offer of peace, Mitsuru has had enough and walks out. And Kokoro is the one that notices. She will later be the one that finds him struggling out in the garden, and was probably keeping an eye on him from this point onward. There is more of this, as I said, around the breakfast table, but first we have to get there. As they descend the stairs towards breakfast, Ichigo attempts to straighten Hiro's collar, but the touch sends him jumping away self-consciously. Here's our second clue that something is awry with him. What's more, having him pull away from her like that is probably painful to Ichigo on some level, and she hangs her head a bit as she explains herself, turning to put the shield of her hair between them. They talk about the previous battle a bit, where they discuss the success of the impromptu plan. We get their long and close relationship reinforced, and the trust that exists between them, and we get a little light teasing. Ichigo's expression and mood improve dramatically in the time it takes them to descend, and she smiles contentedly to herself. I can't help but feel like this is the hero she usually knows. The one from before the failure with Naomi, or whatever started his downward slide. This is the hero she admires and wants to be around. And just when it starts to seem like old times again... Daddy! Ohaya! Ah, crap. 
It seems Zero Two has infiltrated their home in the same way she's infiltrated their squad, and Ichigo's worst fear, she's infiltrated Hero's heart. Back to the downcast eyes and the shielding hair. Now for breakfast, well, I didn't expect this to come back so soon and be so literal, but if you'll remember, I talked about how Zero Two's antics in the first breakfast scene, in uh, episode two, might be representative of how her intrusion would upset the order of the squad. They were separated by genders at the tables, with her at a third table, but she crossed that imposed separation and sat with Hero. Well, here we are again, and the squad is not quite sure what to do. Just look at the expressions in this shot. When Ichigo tries to keep them on schedule, the problem of Fatoshi being displaced is solved by Kokoro's invitation to let a boy sit at their table in turn. Again, we have some lovely expressions to tell us how the group receives this idea. But the result is that the barrier between the boys and the girls is disrupted by Zero Two. We will come back to this idea later on. We get a little bit of a table prayer that puts Papa squarely into a religious leader role. Now, Zero Two has no sense of duty or sacredness to the prayer and is busy going to town on the honey again. She feeds some to Hiro in the anime couple staple of... Again, we have a ton of facial expressions and characterizations as we move around the room. Goto is surprised and apprehensive about the feeding. Zorome is petulant and then outraged that Fitoshi and Kokoro are copying the behavior. Miku shoots daggers at him for saying he preferred Kokoro, and Zorome winces from her glare. This leads to Goto noticing Ichigo's downcast expression with some surprise, and of course, Ichigo looking at herself in her tea, probably trying very hard not to hear all the lovey-dovey bit going on around her. All the honey bit, by the way, is something else we will come back to later. After this scene, we see Hiro explaining the fixed schedules and such to Zero Two. They have set times for each moment of the day, and everything is taken care of for them. Everything is laid out for them. Now during this, there is a book that Hiro picks up in the library. It seems to be called Royce and Abigail, uh, but I am not aware of any reference to a real book. I actually hope this turns out to be the case, and this universe is completely disconnected from our own. At the least, we'll watch to see if some kind of story is told in-universe about some Royce and Abigail characters. If such a thing does come up, we should expect it to mirror something about Hero and Zero Two's relationship, or where their story could head. Now, Zero Two seems mostly bored or fidgety during his tour, but the one thing she does show interest in is what appears to be a fossil of a bird's wing, or perhaps a flying reptile from the past. There are a few other specimens in various rooms that we see, giving a bit of a museum feel to the place, a monument to the past. Finally, Hero shows Zero Two a view out of the top of their dorm overlooking the forest, and he explains that apparently the entire forest was built to fine-tune the parasite's numbers. And the numbers here, I believe, means their performance metrics. Let's assume that that's true for a moment. Think about how much room this forest takes up in these plantations, and how much work and resources must go into such a biodome, all for improving the performance of eight to 10 teenagers? I realize they are the defense force against the Klaxosaurs, but even then, that's an enormous amount of effort for a group of people that are largely treated as disposable. It's no wonder they are confined to the area if the environment itself is part of tuning them for battle. Now, maintaining such a forest means they have to simulate rain from the enormous ceiling, and this idea captivates Zero Two. She demands that Hero make it rain, which he can't do of course, and tries to explain as much, but she demands that she wants to see it now anyway. And when he can't, she seems so disappointed in him. There are moments like this, and like her bit in the next scene where she jumps in the bed, 
That makes me wonder if part of her is still stuck as a little girl who isn't used to being told no. Now, it turns out her interest in the place is quite practical as she is going to be living there. Now, Zorobe picks this moment to burst onto the scene and cry foul, much as he did during breakfast. You know, for the one guy who has actually made it clear he likes the way girls look, he sure seems to be afraid of cooties or something. His rant, though, at least tells us that the dorm is segregated in the same way that the breakfast table is. And just like that, Hero Zero Two breaking the separation to come into the boys' space. Hero guides her out by the hand, something the camera is sure to show us, and Zodome is sure to comment upon. Just in case we were clear that affection between the genders is something that is alien to our parasites. Next, Nana is confirming for Ichigo that Zero Two will be staying with them, though the matter of Hiro's status as a parasite is still up in the air. Nana asks Ichigo to make Zero Two feel at home. I'm sure she relishes that idea. Goro is waiting on her, faithful puppy, and they have a conversation about Hiro's behavior. It's interesting that the only bit of difference between them is that Goro knows he was burning up when he woke up, and yet they interpret the day in totally different ways. What Ichigo says seems to reinforce that the easygoing and confident hero from the earlier scenes is the hero that he used to be. She heads off the conversation and suggests they focus on themselves and the upcoming threat. Now this doesn't mean she isn't worried, and Goto of course has noticed her worry, but she isn't in a place right now where she can afford to be vulnerable if she can help it. Not with a threat looming over them and her need to be the leader to the others. In our next scene we see Mitsuru struggling to swallow pills and his why me and not him rambling tells us that the pills are almost certainly meant to counteract whatever has happened to him as a result of piloting with Zero Two. The way he holds his chest as though in pain makes me wonder if the revelation we have later on about what's happening to Hiro may also be happening to Mitsuru. His bandaged state in the hospital bed last time didn't confirm it either way, I, I went back to check. At the very least, he is doing exactly as Hiro by hiding his distress around everyone else. Unfortunately, Kokoro took note of him earlier, as we pointed out, and she's now come to check on him. She offers help and points out that he never leans on others, but this makes him feel as though he's being pitied. Though he is putting his front back up, we get to see his face as he thinks about being pitied, and he really is in pain. Mitsuru, like Hiro, like Ichigo, and even like Zero Two, is just not in a place where he wants others to see his vulnerable side. Now before we leave this scene, check out what is behind Kokoro. Those are bird of paradise flowers that I've shown before, i.e. the Strelizia family of plants. As a bonus, the plant that Mitsuru is kneeling in front of at first is called a plume coxcomb, otherwise known as Celosia argentea, Miku and Zoromay's franks. Now I'm not sure if there are other matches in this greenhouse right here. Uh, the pink flower nearby I think is some type of cosmos flower, but I'm not sure. Uh, the red flower in the center is a hibiscus for sure. It's possible one of these green things in here is a spider plant, which would belong to the chlorophytum genus that his franks is named for, uh, but I don't know them at a glance. There's also a bunch of succulents in here and some pink orchids behind Kokoro, so I don't think there's supposed to be a direct correlation between these flowers and the story at this point. Uh, but hey, if some new Franks with a hibiscus or an orchid or something name shows up, we can revisit the seam and see if it was linked to one of these two on purpose. Next up, we have Ichigo begrudgingly making Zero Two at home and explaining that, yes, Zero Two, you will have to follow the house rules to live in the house. It's all rather matter of fact until Zero Two states that my darling belongs to me. Now this gives Ichigo pause and she counters Zero Two saying that Hiro doesn't belong to anyone. 
It's an interesting statement. Based on what we've seen, you could definitely say that the parasites belong to the state, or at the very least, they are treated largely like property. Pampered property, but property. Maybe Ichigo just wants to counter Zero Two's presumption. Maybe she doesn't like the implication of possession and what it implies. Or maybe she's just crying foul at another woman asserting ownership over her interest. Regardless, Zero Two does very little to assuage the fear Ichigo has for her involvement with Hiro. It's a fear that is getting worse all the time and will boil over later in this episode. Water drop. Finally, to end our water drop sequence, we cut to Hiro who is doing just fine. The water dropping has now looped back to the same faucet that I guess has been slowly dripping water all day. Alone this time, Hiro has no masks to keep up and is visibly distressed and is in pain. We get the not exactly subtle metaphor of a moth caught in a spider's web and the spider closing in for the kill as Hiro looks on. This prompts him to reach up and grab at his chest in pain. He knows how the moth feels and somehow this pain is linked to that. We'll talk about that when we get there. We do finally get a few little water drops to finish our motif. Uh, if we go back and count Hiro's first lie to Goro while they were in this bathroom the first time, it seems like this water dropping bit is interspersed throughout a long succession of various characters hiding how they feel from others. Hiro and Goro began it, but then Ichigo during breakfast and again with Goro, Mitsuru hiding from Kokoro, Goro hiding his worry from the rest of the group, and Ichigo refusing to be confrontational with Zero Two. All the while, the threat of whatever fight approaches looms over the whole group. This sequence of scenes is downright ominous, showing that unease and pain is simmering below the surface of many of our characters. But none of them feel like they can be honest about what they're going through with the rest. Now the next part begins with Goto looking at Delphinium while lost in thought and worry, but he's interrupted by a visit from some of the squad from Plantation 26, who I'm gonna call the 26ers. Now this scene is full of interesting information. We learn that Plantation 13 having the unique Franks designs is actually unusual. That similar bodies and equipment is what Plantation 26 has, and it's implied that that is the usual way of it. Later on in the conversation, the Plantation 26 leader will remark on their nicknames as well, stating that it is peculiar, and he also somehow knows that Hero is the one behind it. Evidently, Hero is famous among the children of other squads as well. Now the unusual nature of the unique Frank designs and their reaction to the nicknames is, you guessed it, something I will come back to later on. Now the middle part of this conversation is actually the most intriguing. The 26er leader realizes they are the more experienced squad and offers to answer any questions they have. Zodome has one, apparently he's been dying to ask, and it's surprising. Have any children from your squad become adults? Now the guy's expression says a lot as he repeats the question. You'd think he asked if anyone on their squad had grown an extra head yet. But to make the whole thing even more perplexing and alarming, one of the others leans in to say that he probably doesn't know. This also results in the girl in earshot going from surprised to, well, downcast? Maybe resigned? Regardless, they seem to figure out what he means by his question. And though he dodges the thrust of it, we should understand that there is simply something here that they don't want the burden of being the first to disclose. Now I've pointed out before the way the children and adults seem to be segregated in this society, but since our point of view is limited to the parasites and the occasional expo speak from those in charge of them, it's been a hard detail to really nail down. But whatever it is that Plantation 26's squad is choosing not to say, 
I feel like the division I'm only suspecting is probably a real thing, and it may be more substantial than just their role in society. Zodome appears not only to care a lot about the adult's praise, he is eager to become one of them. I guess that's probably normal for a teenager. The way he asks, though, makes it sound like he thinks you get promoted out of being a parasite into being an adult. Uh, does he think that all the adults in society were once parasites? Regardless, I'm sure they can look around and realize that all parasites are children, and so assume that becoming an adult means that your parasite ways are behind you. The way the 26ers react, though, not even understanding the question at first, means that something quite different is afoot. Now, the showrunners want us to wonder, they want us to know that our usual assumptions about child to adolescent to adult progression may be wrong for this universe, but we have nothing else to go on in this episode. We only now know that whatever happens to parasites and wherever adults come from are different than what we might have assumed, and that what actually happens has some reason to be kept secret. But not everything can be kept secret, and returning from this meeting, Goro comes upon a distressed hero. Before Hiro gets to discover the exact nature of his affliction, however, we go live to Nana and Hachi discussing Hiro's blood work. It appears Hiro has a huge spike in his yellow blood cell count, and their discussion links this directly to him riding with Zero Two. What's more, this is apparently the opposite of what usually happens to those who ride with her. So they already knew that changes to blood composition was something to test for, and they knew what the expected outcome would be. Nana is not alarmed that his blood changed, she's alarmed that it changed in an unexpected way. Now she voices that it'd be dangerous to let him ride with her again when we don't know the cause, but I feel like she knows this is an empty protest. They need Strelesia for the upcoming battle, and that takes priority. She notes with some finality that the next time is the third. Just an aside real quick, yellow blood cells are another name for platelets, the part of your blood that is responsible for clotting factor, as well as some wound repair and other regrowth processes. Having too little of these, which is apparently what happens to other parasites, would potentially result in excessive bleeding. Even a small wound could be fatal. What Hero has, instead, is way too many of them. Well, that isn't a good thing either. Having too high of clotting factor can cause strokes or embolism, which could also be fatal or disabling. Biology requires a bit of balance, you know? And well, it's certainly not balanced in Hero. And Goto discovers the thing he's hiding, a massive blue growth on his chest right over his heart. Now is this some kind of giant clot, but color blue instead of red? Blue like Klaxosaur's blood, like Zero Two's blood in her monstrous form? Not human red, but Klaxosaur blue? Now Goto surmised correctly that the oddity came from his ride with Zero Two, and whips out what I guess is some means to call for a medic or emergency or something, a uh, life alert for parasites. Hiro stops him though, and this leads to Goto understanding. Hiro is well aware that he may be in peril, but he has no intention of letting that information get out where he might be stopped. Hiro gulps down water, a detail we'll revisit, and Goto attempts to beg him off of piloting Strelizia, something I'm sure he knows is fruitless at this point. What does surprise him is that Hiro is telling the truth in part. He really does feel great. He says he feels really alive right now, and that he hasn't felt this way in a long time. He confirms what Hiro wants from him, to keep it quiet so that the mission can proceed. Now Goto still wants to protest, but Hiro has regained his composure, and he does look startlingly fine. Hiro apologizes, and the matter seems settled, though Goto has no peace about it. Poor Goto, right? 
It's a hard thing to keep a secret for someone when they're being self-destructive. There's a life lesson for you here, ma'am. You can't help people that don't want to be helped. Better to focus on what you can do, and the next part makes clear that they have way bigger problems. 150 plus Klaxosaurs are bearing down on them in a day and a half, and Hachi lays out the plans in the briefing room. The 26ers, with their greater experience, identical Frank's designs, and apparently a coordinated fighting style, are meant to be the main line of defense, and our 13ers are relegated to backup duty. While this makes a lot of sense, honestly, Miku and Zorome especially bristle at the suggestion that they are dead weight. Then Hachi discloses that the pipe will further be defended by a Franks capable of solo combat. Now the 26ers weren't aware they had such a Franks, and he reveals that they will be joined by Strelizia in combat. Well, now it's the 26ers' turn to be outraged. Nana arrives with Hero in Zero Two, and all seems a go for them to pilot together, but the 26er leader isn't done. He states that they can't fight alongside Strelizia, and it's because that girl doesn't care about her allies. We can't trust her to have our backs. Though he tries to confront Zero Two about it, and remind her of her recklessness in the past that apparently cost him his partner, Zero Two is completely indifferent, apparently not even remembering. She goes on to say, weaklings die. Big deal. Well, I imagine it's a big deal to him. A hero interjects to try to keep the peace, and essentially makes a promise to keep Zero Two from going out of control. We'll see if he has to eat those words or not. I want to point out, though, that Zero Two is not being confrontational that I can tell. Indifferent really seems to be the right word. She's neither antagonizing them for not wanting to fight with her, nor exulting in being able to officially pilot with Hero. But is she just keeping a straight face because Hero is there? To further explore that question, the next scene is the 13ers returning to their dorm through the biodome. Zorome is still chaffed by their treatment, and the parasites debate how they should feel about being backup to tail. Goto stops the group to further agree with the 26ers about Strelizia. Of course, since they don't know what he does, they aren't in agreement. If anything, Strelizia and Hero being from their group has probably become more of a point of pride, and the last battle showcased her working as part of their team to great effect. Goto isn't willing to spill the beans and is overruled. He looks at Hiro, exasperated, and Hiro is sharing a look with him, knowing exactly why he is protesting. But behind him, Zero Two is shooting Goro a look that is downright villainous. Now what Zero Two does or says in these two scenes, or, or rather what she doesn't do or say, does not seem to reflect how she's actually feeling. That look might as well be a shot across the bow at Goro. So he says nothing, but the conflict within him remains. Now the conflict in Goro is made worse as the next part begins. He's trying to sleep beside Hiro, but he can hear him writhing in pain. He escapes outside and sees Ichigo leading Zero Two off somewhere. Though we don't see it, he does apparently follow as he knows what happens later on. Ichigo leads Zero Two to one of those greenhouse enclosures that we saw earlier when Mitsuru and Kokoro spoke. There's a couple details I want to point out here just before diving into the scene. Those blue-purple flowers behind Zero Two are members of the Delphinium genus, Ichigo and Goro's Franks. So we get that reference in a new variety. Also, look at the difference between what Zero Two is wearing versus Ichigo. Ichigo's nightgown is long-sleeved, long-hemmed, covers her almost entirely, and is largely shapeless and loose. It is more of a unisex or child's nightgown. Zero Two, on the other hand, has a much shorter gown that is also sleeveless, exposing a lot more skin. It also clings to her body more tightly and shows more of her body shape. In other words, it is unequivocally a woman's gown. 
though this probably also relates to a difference in their age, I think the contrast is much more that Ichigo is still childlike in all the ways that Zero Two is womanlike. Anyway, the actual discussion is Ichigo pretending, I think, to demand that Zero Two stay in line and treat her as the leader. What she really wants to say, though, is about Hiro, and she asks Zero Two not to push him too hard. Well, actually, she tries to grab her onto her to stop her from walking away, and Zero Two doesn't even break stride and drags her along a bit. This was such a nice touch to remind us just how physically superior Zero Two is. Now, Zero Two isn't going to be cowed on this point, even though she didn't bother arguing about the leader stuff, other than to once again point out that Ichigo is being kind of bossy. This is really just a continuation of their earlier argument about Hiro belonging to her or to no one. To Zero Two, Hiro's willingness to ride with her is the end of the debate. Ichigo doesn't debate what he wants, just wants Zero Two not to harm him. The fear that has been building in Ichigo is almost to the point of boiling over here, though I still don't think she understands why. But Zero Two understands. She asks if she wants Ichigo to give him to her, but of course points out that they already tried that and it failed. Ichigo wants to be left out of it, but Zero Two is right. Ichigo is making herself part of it. And so Ichigo drops the pretense of being a leader worried about one of her squad and asks Zero Two point blank if she is trying to suck Hiro dry. Again, she restates that Hiro belongs to her. In her mind, this seems to be all that matters. That it might be dangerous, even fatal for him, does not figure into the picture. If he dies, it just means he didn't amount to much. I guess the thing we don't know yet is whether the things that Zero Two says here are because she's indifferent to Hiro's fate or because she believes he will succeed and survive and isn't that worried about it. Either way, this is too much for Ichigo, whose fear and confusion cannot reconcile someone as seemingly heartless as Zero Two having claws deep into her beloved hero. She strikes Zero Two, something which is brave and pretty foolish, considering she just got a demonstration about how much stronger Zero Two is, like 20 seconds ago. Ichigo then doubles down on this, saying that Zero Two really isn't human. Now I realize that Ichigo hasn't been around to see how Zero Two reacts to any insinuation that she's a monster, but she has shut down others making the comment before. She knows better. Although she's consistently clamped down on what she feels in order to be in control, uh, in order to lead, in this moment, she doesn't care about that. She hurts, she's afraid, and she lashes out. She means to hurt Zero Two like Zero Two hurts her, with her hands and with her words. But Zero Two has her own frustrations and her own pain and fear, and Ichigo is straying way too near to the center of it with those words. We seem to be really seeing the monstrous side of Zero Two awake here, as her eyes and horns turn red, and she goes from indifferent to threatening. And then she asks Ichigo something, something that actually might turn out to be the central question of the series. What is human to you people? Now, on the surface, she could be asking Ichigo what makes her human and Zero Two inhuman. And this may be a profound philosophical question in its own right. What are the qualities that make someone human in their eyes anyway? But it could also be a more practical question. We know that Zero Two is, in some part, different from the parasites, that she's a different kind of thing. But who is to say that Zero Two is the lone anomaly in the sea of humanity? Who is to say that the parasites themselves are not vastly different than the rest of humanity, or at least different than the adults, who they are assuming are aged up versions of themselves, but they actually might be way off. 
What if the Ape Council is a different kind of thing as well? In a world where we can't assume any of these things are the same, what becomes the commonality that makes anyone human or, or not human? Either way, there is potential here for the series to explore what aspects of a person or a society make it human or inhuman. Zero Two is the only obvious deviation at the moment, but that may change. What if Hero is becoming something? Will Ichigo have to redefine her idea of what human is if that happens? And if the parasites turn out to be more different than they realize, how will they reconcile their idea of essential humanity with that difference? How would they make peace with the society that did this to them, or is potentially using them for their own ends? Now, we already have a lot going on so far, so I don't want to muddy the waters anymore without more to go on. But let's observe that Zero Two's question to Ichigo may come back to haunt us. We do at least learn what Zero Two's little gizmo does. It turns her eyes blue. Seems like contacts would be easier. Again, we don't know enough now, though I think we are supposed to glean that the headband performs some kind of suppression or something of the more monstrous, bestial side of her. We have seen her take it off before, when she was swimming in the pond at the beginning, and she wasn't all red-eyed and glowing with threat then, but she was wet. And this current scene doesn't escalate any further, perhaps because it starts raining. Whether the fact of her being wet in both scenes matters, we don't know, and I'll talk about that later as well. It could just as easily be something so fascinating to her that it distracts her from Ichigo's transgressions. Now, we don't get to see exactly how their confrontation ends, and so we join a very defeated Ichigo as she returns to the dorm. Even when Goro is there to greet her, she still tries to play off that anything is wrong. Luckily, Goro saw it all, and so Ichigo's first instinct, well, apparently everyone's first instinct, but her first instinct to keep her worries inside become pointless. He knows, so she might as well talk about it. Finally. Now Ichigo reasons out that she should be able to help Hiro, but she can't. Couldn't help him, couldn't stop him, and now Zero Two is there for him instead, and she thinks something's wrong with her. Her mind is a mess, she hates how she's feeling, and she can't let go of thinking about Hiro. Goto reaches to comfort her, but, well, he's having some confusing feelings of his own. I know we've been over this a bit, but I think this is another manifestation of the parasite's ignorance of sexuality uh, that I keep speculating about. Ichigo feels a certain way about Hiro, instinctively and subconsciously, but has no way to articulate it. She has no experience to draw on, and she has no knowledge of what is or isn't normal. Heck, even knowing these things doesn't prepare you for actually feeling strongly about someone. And now, Goro has finally noticed that he feels a certain way about Ichigo. He doesn't know what it is either, but seeing her distraught over another guy is going to start to affect him in the same way that Hiro running around with Zero Two is affecting Ichigo. I would expect the tumult in our squad to continue increasing for some time. Finally, the rain has subsided, the sun is up, and we join a becalmed Zero Two and Hiro back at the pond where they first met. She is really quite taken with the rain, and asks Hiro to do it again sometime, before apparently remembering that he can't, and he says he doesn't yet know that for sure. It's an odd detail, you know, this insistence that he caused the rain, and her belief that he can, and it's made even odder by him wondering if maybe he can somehow or someday. Now as they look over the pond, we get another bird image, as Hiro talks about how he is only standing there because of meeting her. Zero Two agrees, and adds that she is his only partner, she alone. 
As if to assert this possession, she unzips his shirt, knowing very well that she will find the blue clotted heart beneath it. Then, surprisingly, it is her and not him that broaches the subject of her partner killer reputation and the lethal third ride. She's making sure he knows. She also knows that that blue heart hurts him, that the pain is unbearable, and yet she finds it beautiful. And then she questions if he wants to go forward, if he wants off this ride. I think this is pretty important. She is making sure he knows what he's getting into. She's not trying to trick him or deceive him. She brings up the clotted heart and the deadly third ride herself. And conversely, despite what he's going through, Hero doesn't demand answers or ask what will happen to him. He also doesn't ask Zero Two to spare him or to go easy on him or anything at all that implies she is harming him on purpose. To Hero, the risk is just what it is. It's not something that Zero Two is choosing. Maybe it's misplaced and naive, but you know what this is? This is two people who trust each other. That doesn't mean they'll magically be okay, mind, but the nefarious Zero Two that others see doesn't appear to be the real Zero Two. If she does harm Hero, it will be in the same way that Plutonium would harm him. Not on purpose, just as a byproduct of its very nature. And I think she has faith in him that he will survive somehow, and she is able to show her excitement to him. Knowing that he chooses her anyway leads her to dance and laugh and show someone else something that matters to her. Now why is that worth pointing out? Well, remember what pattern repeated itself all through this episode? Hiro drew back from Goro or Ichigo finding out what he was going through. Ichigo tried to avoid revealing her worry to Goro. Mitsuru blew off Kokoro. And Goro didn't express his concern to the group. And Ichigo tried to mask her fear of Zero Two. What do we have then? A long succession of people trying to hide their fears and vulnerabilities from each other. How do we end? With two people talking straight about the risks faced, showing what hurts them, and being honest about what is wanted and what is felt. How is it that we have this whole squad of teammates who are trying not to rely on each other, while the two outsiders have decided that, for better or worse, they're going to trust one another and shoot straight? Which of these groups is more like a team right now? Zero Two's question comes back to me now. What is human to you people? All right, so goals. Uh, the only real movement here is that Hero will, for the first time, be officially sanctioned to pilot Strelizia. This actually moves both of his goals, as being on an official mission is about as accepted as it gets right now, and piloting with Zero Two is what counts for flying for him for now as well. The fact that this could also kill or disable him and make his goals unachievable, well, that just keeps it interesting, right? Now in conflicts, on the other hand, haha. <laughs> Huh. So first we get our ongoing Klaxosaur threat turned up to 11 as 150 or more of the things are bearing down on the two plantations. At least this is a known and expected threat, and at least there is a battle-hardened squad to help our crew out. Then we have our Zero Two Devourers Partners conflict. Now we don't yet know everything that the Blue Clotted Heart will mean or why it's happening, we're not even totally sure that it being blue and Klaxosaurs having blue blood is correlation or not, uh, though I'm guessing it is. But rather than being perfectly fine, as he seemed last time and he insisted throughout this episode, Hiro is actually in a bad way, and the discussion around his blood work just confirms it. 
Now, that blood work conversation does tell us that he is reacting differently than past parasites, so that seems like a way out of the disaster. It still remains, though, that the disastrous third piloting I talked about last time is barreling ahead without interruption, just as we thought it might. There's probably no forestalling Judgment Day for Hero. We'll just have to see what he is on the other side of it. Now, in our Ichigo Fallout conflict, I suggested before that if Zero Two is going to be around them more often, that this would have a chance to boil over, and, well, it did. I was definitely bracing for Ichigo to get roughed up a little bit there. I wonder if Hiro's potential reactions stayed Zero Two's hand at all. On top of that, Ichigo's escalation of inner conflict is now going to drag Goto into it as well, as he may start to realize he has some confusing and painful feelings of his own. So, that's three conflicts that have new developments, and the first two should at least see some kind of resolution in the next episode or two. I would wager that Ichigo's actually gets worse before it gets better. We will add on some new conflicts as well. Uh, let's add that the 26ers are wary. Uh, what I mean here is that the other squad was already keeping a healthy distance from our 13ers, not giving anything away about the adults question from Zorame, and then making it clear that they would fight as their own unit in the conflict. That was even before they realized that Strelizia would be joining them, and what's more, she's piloting as part of the 13ers squad. This may be nothing, but they have been set up to potentially not be the comrades in arms that our squad will need in the upcoming conflict. There is no trust here where there should be, and that is the first ingredient when cooking up a disaster. Uh, we will add Blue Heart, Yellow Blood. Although this is part of that Devour's Partners conflict, this could conceivably have a different track and resolution without increasing or decreasing the risk that Zero Two poses to Hero or anyone else. I can't imagine that the pain it causes Hero is meant to be the new normal, so I would expect some kind of progression, better or worse, should occur to this growth of his. We'll also go ahead and assume that something similar is happening to Mitsuru, and we'll await to see whether that is ongoing for him or not. Finally, we will add that the team is not a team. Like Ichigo ironically pointed out, they also have themselves to worry about and can't just focus on the obvious problem with Hero. The squad mates have a lot of pain and confusion between them, and almost no one seems to be able to talk it out or address it. Their fearless leader is losing her ability to put her tempestuous heart aside to lead them, and her partner is likely to have his own issues soon as well. Everyone has some kind of conflict. Well, except for Fatoshi and Kokoro. Hopefully that doesn't mean that they're doomed. So now to the promised and crowded theme. Let me get right to the new pattern that made itself clear this episode, uh, and then we'll talk about how I want to try to fit some of our existing symbols around it. This episode showed us, uh, more than any episode before it, that the lives of the parasite are highly, highly ordered and prescribed. All their living needs are provided for them, and they are on a strict schedule for everything they do. They wear the same matching uniforms every day, they are strictly segregated by gender, they are restricted to the areas they can be in, but those areas are huge and luxurious, and a lot of work has gone into them. As I mentioned when talking about the dome earlier, a lot of resources go into these parasites' day-to-day -day living, but with that comes a ton of restrictions and structure. Evidently, this is more true in other plantations, as the 26ers are surprised at the individuality that exists in the nicknames and the unique Franks designs. The leader even openly wonders what the point of that is. They also, evidently, employ some kind of team tactics that would be disrupted by outsiders. 
furthering this homogenous pattern. The pomp and ritual of the rest of society seems to treat the parasites as a type of taboo people, a group who is sacred and so must remain apart, but is so important that they are not allowed to have any kind of normalcy or personal agency. They are given numbers to go by. They are given numbers as goals to strive for. They are not individuals. Then, into all this comes Zero Two, a Franks capable of fighting independently and a pistol to match. She does not stay where she is put. She does not do as she is told. She ignores decorum and barriers. She doesn't respect the segregation. She does not treat anything as sacred, not even her life or the life of others. She is undistilled individualism, both the good and bad sides, and she is here to upset the apple cart. It is little wonder that Hero, giver of names, giver of individuality, would find himself drawn to her and her to him. With this clear contrast, we have a conflict that shows a familiar pattern, the conformity of a society versus the freedom of the individual. Now, how to fit that idea with what we've already observed and the symbols and terminology we haven't quite sorted? Well, let's start with these. You know where these flowers came from? They weren't picked wild in a field. I didn't randomly find them in my backyard. They were cultivated by professionals. They were bred and crossed through hundreds of generations, raised under just the right conditions to have them bloom in mid-February. Artificial conditions, I assure you. Then they were selected and cut and arranged and put forth. I imagine many failed plants and discarded stems were part of that process, and all for a very fleeting thing. Yeah, they're very pretty, but we all know what's happening to these flowers, right? They do not have a long, bright future. They are dying even as they sit there, doomed as soon as they were chosen for their purpose. Well, the parasites are flowers. Yes, I know they have flower part names already, but I want you to think of the entire Franks, Pistol, Stamen entity as one whole flower. The Franks is the flower proper, the pilots its reproductive parts. Consider the greenhouses that I made mention of in this episode. They're glass-domed buildings separated from their surroundings to promote a certain environment, and they're full of the very flower names that match our Franks. Well, pull back and see the entire upper area is a glass dome, producing a sequestered, highly controlled environment for housing and tuning the parasites to just the way they are wanted. Because, let me tell you, when you are cultivating a strain of flowers, you don't want this one to be yellow and this one reddish-brown. You don't want this flower to have eight petals and the other to have ten. To branch twice versus thrice. To be one foot tall, ranging up to eight feet tall. No, you want predictability. You isolate the aspects you want, and then you breed all the variants out of them. You want repetition. You want reiteration. You want conformity. You want a bunch of roses to look like a single unit, not a bunch of haphazard individual blossoms. And to accomplish this, an enormous amount of exactly prescribed steps must be followed, and any straying from the path needs to be cut away. So yes, the plantation society is cultivating the parasites in the same way horticulturalists breed flowers. Now, professionals are responsible for flower farming in our world, but before that happened, you know what else was responsible for a lot of flower proliferation? You know who else was responsible for promoting and aiding the breeding of flowers? Bees. The plantation society are bees. Living in giant but regularly shaped hives, bees. Full of geometric yellow inner structures, bees. 
Creating a golden-colored energy source like honey, uh, I mean magma? Bees. A society full of obedient and homogenous, faceless workers, obeying orders with no individualism. Bees. Let me dive into a bit of beeology for a second. You know what makes up most of a bee colony's population? Worker bees, all of whom are sterile. You know who isn't sterile? The lone queen bee at the top of the order and the male drone bees. You know what the drone bees do in that society? Nothing. They don't work, they don't defend the hive, they are cared for by the worker bees, they are a drain on the rest. They are, well, parasites. Well, almost. They do have one purpose, they can reproduce. They can mate with a queen, a different queen, so that she can produce more young and keep the society going. And I think it bears mentioning that once drones perform their task of mating with a queen, they die. They don't get to grow up to be worker bees, that's for sure. Now, I realize I just likened our children to both bees and flowers, but it's not quite the conflict it may seem. They are part of the society they live in, but they are also part of what it is designed to cultivate. Not the only thing it does, but an important part of it. After all, bees need pollen in the wild, both to eat and make honey and other products, and this means they need flowers. And as it turns out, they are primary pollinators for a large array of plants. It's in their interest to keep the flowers alive and reproducing. Well, the plantations need their parasites, too, ostensibly for protection against claxosaurs, but as I've suggested numerous times, they may need them for some other purpose as well. So what do you not want in your bee society and your flower farming? Individuals. Individuality. Self-determination. The randomness that comes with personal agency. Give them numbers and strict schedules and matching clothing and ruthlessly cull any that step out of line. Now, of course, they may introduce some randomness on purpose. Maybe the flowers you've been growing aren't good enough anymore and you need some new variants. So you introduce some new designs. You experiment with crossbreeding. You toy with outcomes. But you do it on your terms and you quarantine those experiments and control them as well as you can. Maybe that means unique Frank's designs. Maybe it means tolerating the nicknames. Maybe it means crossing your enemy's blood with your own. It may mean all that, but I am guessing that it doesn't mean cutting the flowers loose to do what they please. But that may happen anyway. Maybe one of them doesn't respect your attempts to control. Maybe they greedily gorge themselves on the product of your labors. That's fine in isolation, but what if they suggest that behavior to someone else? What if they upset your careful segregation and even more people start mimicking that behavior? Now, I can see how this might upset you, sitting there in your queen's chamber, in your special eggs, watching golden hexagons proliferate around you. For now, though, you just watch. You watch and you see how your flowers grow. So, yeah, that is how I'm framing our symbols and what they represent for now. The society and its imposed conformity has a beehive thing going on and the Franks and pilots are like the flowers they cultivate while also being part of the society. While society wants to impose order and control on them, they do want some variants to creep in. This is similar to how mutations in DNA can shake things up, giving a creature an edge or dooming it to oblivion. The ape council wants to sit back and see which way this variance breaks. After all, the crossbreeding or whatever produced Zero Two seems like it's been a net gain for them so far. But 
she exists in opposition to the controlling society over the individual ethos of the Ape Council. What's more, now that she's among a group who are showing their own signs of individuality, this struggle has a potential to break wide open, with the 13er squad leading the way. Now, a related but possible distinct symbol comes out of this as well, the honey. Zero Two gorges herself on it, feeds it to Hiro, and this influences Fatoshi and Kokoro to do the same. Now, what could Honey independently stand for? We've already observed that Zero Two and Hiro are the first among these parasites to be affectionate to one another. Should we expect Kokoro and Fatoshi to be next? Does this mean that Honey represents sexuality, fertility, individuality, or the end product that this society hopes to produce? It could be more than one of those just as well. Eh, we will keep watch. Now there is another recurring motif throughout the series that gets turned up in frequency this episode, and that is the thematic pattern of water. Water drop. And we started this whole series with Zero Two in frozen water in monstrous form, moved to her dreaming of an ocean, and then swimming in the pond where she met Hero. We have the parasites living above a lake, birds appearing on and above the water, parasites reflected on the water's surface, the bathing confrontation, and, of course, the fact that the landscape seems completely devoid of water, utterly barren. This episode, we had the water dripping sequence, Hero's gulping down of water when in distress, and Zero Two's fascination with the rain. And so, in a way, we've ended as we've begun, with Zero Two in some rough garment, standing in precipitation, except this time it's rain instead of snow, the cloth is light instead of dark, and she's more human than monster. Now, what does all this portend? Well, water as a symbol of life and fertility is as old a symbol as there is, and I'm sure this is part of it. We observed this time that water may have a type of civilizing effect, or at least a type of restraining effect on the claxosaur or bestial blood. Zero Two was able to have her headband off when swimming in episode one, and the rain seems to mellow her out there at the end. Hero is afflicted by the blue heart thing he has going on, and if we're linking that to Claxosaur in some way, then his gulping of water to suppress the pain would perhaps mirror what is going on with Zero Two. The constant water dripping sequence may actually be representing Hero returning to that sink over and over throughout the day, watering himself to keep this part of him pacified. Maybe it will turn out that the Claxosaurs don't much care for water. The wastes are their home, and there appears to be no water there. Perhaps we'll have a situation like the sandworms of the Dune series, where water is poisonous to the giant worms, and so they intentionally sequester and contain it, causing the planet to be a vast desert. And of course, flowers need the rain. Let's not skip over that obvious link. Uh, we'll further explore water's meaning to the series uh, as we progress. Well, we've worked through plants and the bees and water and honey, so now it's time to talk about birds and flight. Now here's where I wanted to segregate our plant stuff and the bird stuff out, the thing I said last time that I was unsure about. Bird and flight imagery, I think, are meant to stand in opposition to the bee symbol stuff. They're a type of ideal. Uh, let me explain. Imagine that you're a flower. You're pretty, you're bright and colorful, you love the sun and the rain and the sky, but you don't move. You live and die exactly where you were planted. You're literally rooted to the spot. The tiniest of bugs has more freedom than you, will travel further in its life than you can ever hope, ever dream. So you stare at the vast sky, and what do you see? The freest things of all. 
Beings who are so unrooted they even leave the ground behind. Birds. If you were a flower, I imagine you might dream of being a bird. Bright and colorful, just like you are, but free. So free in comparison to your lot in life that their lives must seem impossible by contrast. The life of a bird is the furthest thing imaginable from the flower's point of view. Maybe even as far away as true freedom outside the domes is from the parasite's point of view. But I am guessing if you spend all day looking up at the sky, you might find yourself doing a bit of dreaming. So what can the birds and flight in particular represent? Well, freedom, but it seems it might also mean individuality, self-determination, agency, and in the Jin bird analogy, true companionship. I imagine that's not something the parasites are really afforded, and maybe no one in society is. And all that runs counter to the agenda of the bees, the good of the hive and its goals. They need the flowers to be just so, and to stay where they're planted. It's quite the problem if they end up flying free. Now there is some nuance to this symbol. Hero has made mention of fragile or dangerous wings that may injure him or fail him. And there is the imperfect incompleteness of the gin bird and their solitary wing. So the dangers and pitfalls of this symbol and the freedom it seems to stand for are already built into our story so far. This is not a battle of pure ideals, but realistic dreams. Now, I know it seems like I've said that the parasites are bees and flowers and also birds. And yes, they are. Because the parasites are not a single person. Each of them may end up more closely aligning to one of these than the others. And because they are characters in flux, each individual parasite may more closely embody these symbols at different points through their own character journey. Also, probably some of them don't make it to the end. They will be the flowers left on the cutting room floor, the drone bee forced out of the hive for winter, the bird with broken wings crushed underfoot. In a way though, this just means they succeeded in some small part at being individuals. Finally, and this is not a real thing probably, but I can't just not mention it. I have put forward that the parasites are ignorant of sexuality. Uh, in other words, no one has ever set them down and given them the talk. You know, the sex talk. That thing that parents traditionally do with their children as they approach puberty. An awkward bit of awfulness for everyone involved. The talk. Well, it has another name. A colorful little idiom. It's also known as the birds and the bees. Now, as far as I know, that's only an English language speaking thing. Uh, most idioms are language specific. So it would be a real stretch to say that our Japanese friends did this on purpose. But considering the wide speaking of English in Japan and the enormous cultural influence American and British culture has on the world, it's not impossible. Even if purely coincidental, it's certainly amusing. All right, so that was a lot of theme. We're gonna rush through to the end here because this is probably getting out of hand. Sorry, the, the episode was really good. I, I could probably yak all day. Moving into what to watch for, uh, we'll skip the graphic because nothing at all was conclusively answered for us. My theme guesses potentially explain some of it, but that is all conjecture. We, we can't count it. So let's just add the obvious things that we're watching for. We're watching to see how this blue thing shakes out and how Hero and Zero Two's next mission goes and how these two things are related. Hero's blood doing something different than other parasites will certainly be something we expect to be explained and expanded upon. 
Oh, and I guess we'll also watch to see what becomes of Mitsuru's affliction, and whether it's similar to Hero's, and whether it recedes, or grows, or stays the same. Now we did get a minor confirmation that us wondering about the adult parasite separation was not just me reaching for anything, and so now we are definitely watching to see what in the world it is that Zorume and the rest don't know about it that the 26ers do know. That mystery may actually end up containing a lot of other answers inside of it. We'll be watching to see how the squad will react once the truth of Hero's affliction comes out. You can bet Goro is going to get an earful from Ichigo, and we may see their relationship deteriorate even more because of it. Speaking of that, let's just go ahead and speculate. So in speculation, we do actually have some movement on things we've said before. I said Hero will confront Zero Two on the damage her partners take. Well, no. Turns out Zero Two brought the subject up to him. Though, I guess thanks to the thing on his chest, Hero didn't actually need to confront her. He kind of got a sense of what happens. Um, I also guessed that Plantation 26 would be the home of the rivals. Well, I'm wrong and right. The squad there is definitely shaping up to be rivals but these are not the same people who we see in the opening credits, who I am still guessing are the Nines. We'll call this a push, and I'll keep the speculation about the Nines. Now, I said that the Parasites would be cool towards Zero Two in the short term. This is basically true. They don't know how to talk to her, and talk like she's not there several times, speaking about her, but not to her. Ichigo is the only one who has actually addressed her, outside of Hero, and she escalated from cool into really hot. So yeah, not welcoming, we'll call this correct and completed, even though it's probably going to continue. Now then finally, we will add some speculation on. Like I kind of hinted at the end of what to watch for, I think that Goro and Ichigo are headed for a little bit of conflict and they will fall apart in combat. This will especially be true if they figure out why they feel the way they feel right now. And doubly so, if Ichigo learns that Goro has kept Hiro's condition from her. We saw them lose control just over her remembering the ill-fated kiss. I can't imagine it will go well if things really come to a head. For extra bonus points, the creators may choose the heat of the upcoming battle to let it really go south. Uh, let's see. I think Hiro is going to change in some fundamental way. Does it mean he'll become like Zero Two? Uh, I'm not going to go that far, though it's possible it'll be something like that. The other option for him seems like death, and I think he's got way too much thematic inertia to leave the stage just yet. So I predict some fundamental change to his being. It may actually be what the Ape Council is hoping will happen. Maybe Zero Two is hoping that someone else like her will exist too, which is why she's willing to let him risk his life in the attempt. Now I probably also tipped my hand by making the 26er squad into a conflict, uh, but I speculate that they're going to act in some way that endangers some part of our squad. I also think that they thematically represent the society, while our 13ers are on the way to thematically representing the individual. So having them clash in some way makes sense in a thematic light as well. There is one more speculation I kind of tipped my hand on in theme, uh, but I'm speculating that just as the parasites are going to end up being different than the adults, something we had hinted at already, the adults will end up being different from those on the Ape Council. The beehive analogy means that we would have drones and workers and a queen, and those are all different in bees. So I would expect that our queen stand-in, the Ape Council members, to be different in some way as well. Now while all the other adults cover themselves up quite a bit, 
The eight members are fully encased, so there is likely to be some kind of surprise lurking under those ostentatious outfits. Okay, that's all, I think. I hope you liked this episode as much as I did. It was a different look and feel than the episodes before it, and we have some exciting and difficult to predict moments coming in the near future, I think. I'll see you after we find out more next week. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.